Hi, my name is Pastor Tony Garbarino of Providence Presbyterian Church. We're delighted that you tuned in to hear a message from God's Word. If you'd like to find more information about us, please go to providencefw.org, providencefw.org. We seek to be Bible-based, gospel-saturated, and Christ-centered. So please enjoy now this message. Thanks for coming. Take your copy of the scriptures and turn to the prophet Zechariah. We've been going through this Old Testament book, Minor Prophet Zechariah. This morning we'll be reading in chapter 3. Let's go to the Lord and ask his blessing upon the reading and the hearing and the preaching of God's word before we do so. Let's pray together. Lord God, our Father, we come again now to you. and We are eager to hear your word. We come to sit at your feet and to be still and to listen. And we pray, Heavenly Father, help us to settle our souls and focus our hearts and our minds. Help us to receive from you that which is more, most important, your word. Because there you give us yourself, your grace, your blessing, your kingdom. As there we read of Jesus in the gospel and salvation from our sins. It is for all these that we yearn and long. And so we pray, Lord, open our eyes and our hearts that we might accept by faith all that we hear. That it may change our lives and our hearts and that we may be transformed evermore into the image of our Savior, Jesus Christ. For it's in his name that we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Zechariah chapter 3. <clears throat> Zechariah 3. Please give your full attention. This is the word of our God. <clears throat> then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. And so they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts. And I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Hear now, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you. They are men who are a sign. Behold, I will bring my servant, the branch. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. 
So for the reading of God's word, may he add his blessing to it. Well, this past July marks a full four years since the Garbarinos arrived in Fort Wayne. Um, And as I look back over the course of those years, uh, it's very evident that very much has happened, much has changed. Um, The Lord has done many things in our lives, in all of our lives. Uh, The love of Christ's people has been overwhelming to us at times. God's love through his people, through you, his people, through much pain and difficulty, the Lord has used his people to encourage and to support and to comfort us, even as he grows us all together. Um, In those first couple of years, many of us lost loved ones. The Lord has brought us through much pain and suffering. In 2019 particularly, it was a very difficult year. And then 2020 has been a year that so far no one would have imagined uh, would ever have been. Uh, Very many things have changed since 2016. When I arrived here, there was, of course, no pandemic. There were no shutdowns. There were no masks. There were no fights over masks. Uh, No protests, no rioting, no looting in various cities across the country. Of course, politics and cultures change moment by moment. Many things changed. Uh, Another thing that has changed is uh, all the babies that you've had uh, in the congregation. It's been a glorious thing. That's a big change to any family. But there's one thing that has not changed, does not change, nor ever will change. And that's the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. God is not a man that he should change, Scripture declares. He is the same yesterday, today, and indeed forever. And that great exchange that takes place in the salvation of sinners, right, the provision of God for his people, that does not change. We see that in our text this morning in Zechariah chapter 3. Uh, we've been reminded, as we've looked through a number of times, I've quoted a theologian, uh, those encouraging words about Zechariah. Uh, that says Zechariah is the longest and most obscure of any Old Testament of any of the prophets, and the most difficult of any Old Testament book to interpret, um, and that is indeed the case. Uh, and while the prophets in Zechariah can indeed be very difficult at points, they are glorious. They are glorious because they preach Christ. They preach that same unchanging Christ in the New Testament, and even before throughout the entire Bible. And so we'll see in our text this morning the gospel, God's provision in our hope. Recall that Zechariah is a prophet who's ministering in the time of Israel's history when they had been restored to the land after 70 years, 70 years in exile. They're restored to the land. Zechariah is God's man to encourage them to repent and to renew their covenant with him. And this repentance and renewal would, of course, be necessary for the people to be ready to worship once the temple is, is rebuilt, is completed. And so in Zechariah, we see he is giving a seri- given a series of visions. And they are given to encourage the people that God would dwell in their midst, that he would be with them, his people, and that God would save them from the evil without and the evils within. And the visions gave comfort to them, and even more so, to us. And so we see how faithful God is, how he keeps his promises. We can look back and we can look forward that he will still do so, even for us. And so up to this point, as we've looked at Zechariah and these, uh, the three visions before, uh, they've been 
uh, for our encourage for their encouragement and their comfort, and indeed for us as well. And God has challenged them, and He calls them to return to Him, and He promises to restore them and to defeat their enemies, and to be their God, and to abide with them, to dwell with them. And this is all, of course, fulfilled in Christ. We've seen this time and again. Right? God with His people, Emmanuel. And let's never forget the blessing that is ours. As we look back at this Old Testament book, Zechariah, the blessing that is ours in having the full revelation of God, the full picture in bright New Testament light. And so, as I said, this is the fourth vision of Zechariah, the fourth night vision, as they're referred to. And it deals with God as guardian of his courts, an unclean priesthood, and our dire need to be made acceptable before God. Right? God as his guardian and this unclean priesthood in our need. And we see in summary that because we are in and of ourselves, in our flesh, in our fallen state, because we are broken and dirty and sinful, we need a Savior who is both willing and able to accomplish that salvation for us. If we, were to have, if we are to have salvation, the Lord must be the one who does this. He must do these things to make these promises a reality for his people. This fourth vision proclaims the good news of the gospel, his righteousness for our sins. And as we look at the flow of this fourth vision, we see that it unfolds like this, and there's an outline in the back of your liturgy there. We see the contamination in verses 1 to 3, the contamination of our own filthy garments. And then in verses 4 to 7, the clothing of God's pure garments. And then in verses 8 to 10, it speaks of the coming of the branch. The coming of the branch. So we have the contamination, the clothing, and the coming of the branch. First in verses 1 to 3, we see the contamination of our filthy garments. This vision opens, and it's a courtroom scene. Right? We're all, we're all aware um, of what goes on in a courtroom, whether from television or movies or being on jury duty. We all uh, have, we're all acquainted with this. There, is, there are three figures uh, that, that factor in here. There's the accused, right, the person who's on trial, and then the accuser, the prosecutor, and then the judge. Zechariah sees these. In verse 1 it says, Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan at his right hand to accuse him. Right? Joshua is the accused. He is the first person as we look at these visions thus far, to be discussed as an individual, right? Beforehand, they have been, uh, there's been, uh, it's been symbolic, right? The figures and the uh, things that are going on have been symbolic. But here is the first time that a, that a person is mentioned, Joshua. And Joshua is who? He's the high priest. And this is very important regarding what is going on, right? The context, uh, the rebuilding of the new city, right? They will need a priest who's capable to minister the, act, the duties of the priesthood. Right? Now, this isn't, of course, the Joshua from Exodus or from the book of Joshua. It's another Joshua, but the name means the same thing. Right? Yeshua, the Lord saves, or salvation is of the Lord. And, of course, you'll remember as well that the Greek version of this name is Jesus. Jesus, Jesus. The Lord saves. Salvation is of the Lord. And Zechariah sees Joshua, someone who he, with whom he's familiar and Joshua, the high priest, is the accused. And also we see the angel of the Lord. Right? This is Christ himself standing by. And that title, angel of the Lord, is not new 
It does not appear for the first time here in Zechariah. We see it in other places at other times in the Old Testament. And this is why many scholars throughout the history of the church, John Calvin included, understand this to be a Christophany, right? A, a, an appearing of Jesus before the Incarnation. And they have good reason to believe this. At key moments in redemptive history, as redemptive history unfolds, we see this messianic divine figure throughout. We see it in Genesis, we see it in Exodus, and to be sure we see it in the prophets. And we can look at passages in places like Exodus 23, where God promises to send an angel before his people to lead them into the promised land. We don't have time to unfold all of uh, the arguments for that and all the evidence for that, but in a very Trinitarian way, the angel of the Lord must be both identified with and distinguished from God. And so the angel of the Lord speaks to God, and God speaks to the angel. And for these reasons, and others, as I've said, some people, like even as far back as Justin Martyr in the second century, and up until today, have concluded that these are appearances of the pre-incarnate Christ, the Lord himself. And so we see this angel of the Lord. He assumes the place in this courtroom scene of whom? Of the judge. And the accuser, Satan, or just the accuser, and he is accusing. This is what the name Satan means, as you may well know. It means accuser. And there's a repetition in Hebrew, the translation of that verse. This is the accuser standing at his right hand to accuse him. So that's the emphasis there. Satan loves to accuse God's people because he knows that God is just and he knows that God cannot go back on his word and that he must punish the wrongdoer because God is perfectly holy and perfectly just. And so Satan accuses because he hates man because he knows that man bears the image of God and is the glory of God and he wants that image or else he wants that image, uh, that glory not to, to be towards Jesus. And so he accuses and he accuses, like in Job or like in Revelation, over and over. He is the antagonist of God's people. And here he accuses Joshua, the high priest. And what is the charge that this accuser makes? The charge is the filthy garments. The filthy garments. Not just dirty, filthy. And Joshua is the high priest. Right? Think about that. He's the man to represent the people of God in the holy place. place. He is to be clean, ceremonially clean. He is the man to be pure, to make sacrifices for the people of God. But here he is unacceptable. As we look at the passage and we look at the, uh, uh, the words, the word filthy there, it's a very sanitized word, oddly enough. It's actually a very gross term, very graphic term. What it actually says is much, comes much closer to describing fallen man's spiritual condition. Filthy there in that context means excrement smeared. It's gross. And that would render anyone unacceptable, even on an earthly level. It's the most vile thing someone could think of to describe the worst kind of dirtiness. Right? Think of dressing up to go somewhere, to a child's wedding or to an anniversary dinner, or to a prom, or fill in the blank. We would never think of going somewhere with excrement-soiled garments. Most of us are horrified when we step in the messes of our cats and dogs, let alone on our clothing. 
How much more the high priest, the man chosen to be pure ceremonially for the, to represent for the people of God to the Lord himself. It's a bad situation. The high priest standing before God, going into the holy place where God, uh, while physically disgusting and of course ceremonially unclean and undone. And this was indicative of the priesthood in Zechariah's day if nothing else but for the defilement of being in exile under a pagan rule. And this is a big problem. It's a bad problem. The priesthood was unholy and it was defiled. And even though they were the nation in covenant with God, this is the situation. And so in the vision, the high priest steps into court, into the courtroom to be accused. And Satan steps forward and he accuses Joshua. And his accusation is accurate and is credible. Even though he is the father of lies, these accusations are true. And you can say that this person is a sinner. He is unacceptable. He's filthy. And this is really what these garments symbolize, right? They symbolize sin. And this is what makes uh, us unacceptable in God's sight. Not even our good works, not even our righteousness our apparent righteousness makes us acceptable before God. We have lots of folks, as I mentioned, who've had over the course of the last few years many babies in this church, parents. Right? And all of you who are, uh, are parents, we know that when we are new parents, we go through a period of rapid growth. Right? We are shocked sometimes uh, at all the, all the things that our babies do. And as new parents... Any of you who are parents know this, our gross tolerance factor quickly goes way up. Because as wonderful and sweet as our babies are, they make really unpleasant messes in their diapers and have to be changed. Someone's got to do it. One of my professors told me once that, he said, I don't know much about economics, but when he had his first child, he finally knew what a gross domestic product was. <laughs> and that's true. I think we can all relate to that reality. Right? Imagine wearing something like clothes smeared with baby diapers. Say, okay, I'm ready for the banquet. Let's go to the wedding. The only reason God accepts any of us, any of our works, is because of Jesus Christ. And this is what gives Satan's accusation so much power and credibility. Right? Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and rags, and he is unfit for God's presence. And the priesthood was impure. It was defiled. So Joshua was contaminated. He was unclean. He was filthy. Even as all of us, brothers and sisters, before the Lord on our own, before he got a hold of you, were unclean and were filthy as well. And the contamination of your own filthy garments. This is the reality, the contamination that we see. And then next we see beautifully and gloriously the clothing of God's pure garments. What God does as he acts upon Joshua, even as he acted upon you in verses 4 to 7. We see in this vision that the Lord could have rightly condemned Joshua. He could have said, Satan is correct and you need to be punished. And that's the case from the prosecutor Satan. That is what he's saying. But that's not what the Lord does. It's not what he does. Rather, look in verse 2 if we go back. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. 
Is not this a, a brand plucked from the fire? Right? There's a double rebuke from the Lord to the accuser. And the judge is saying to the prosecutor, I'm throwing this case out of court. He is mine. The court chose him and brought him out of exile. And he is like a burning stick, drawn, saved, plucked from the exile. And he has been chosen to serve in my court. And you don't have a case against him. I refuse to admit this evidence, O accuser. But the judge, because he is just, he can't just merely throw it out. We've seen that the accusation is true. Joshua is what? He's defiled. He does have filthy garments on, verse 3 tells us. And so what, ha what must happen? The judge must provide the righteousness that the priest is in need of. The judge must provide the righteousness. He has to do something in order to clear Joshua of all these charges. The angel of the Lord knows that the charges against Joshua are valid as long as Joshua remains in those disgusting garments. And so he provides Joshua with the very thing that was needed. At verse 4, And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken away your iniquity. I will clothe you with pure vestments. Right? The garments, these dirty garments are iniquity. He says, I will clothe you with pure garments, pure vestments, pure priestly clothes. God makes Joshua acceptable for the priesthood. God makes Joshua suitable to stand in his presence. And then in verse 5, let them put a clean turban on his head. Right? The turban was a significant part of the clothing. It completed the clothing. And this shows that the Lord took away the reproach of the priesthood and made ready the priests for service. It is the Lord who cleans and consecrates and commissions the priests. And that's why in verses 6 and 7, he assures Joshua that he is acceptable before the Lord. And he commissions him as high priest. Joshua is what? We read he is to guard God's courts, his dwelling place in the temple. He is to guard the worship and ensure that the worship of the people of the temple is pure and undefiled. He is now fit for service, and he's commissioned to go and do so. And you know, this vision, vision also shows us something else. Again, that God does not change. His ways do not change. And we see in this vision that the Old Testament understood well this truth. It teaches the concept of righteousness imputed to the sinner given to the sinner from another. Again, the gospel is the same in the Old Testament and the New Testament. It is the same all the way through. It does not change. The doctrine of uh, what we call technically imputed righteousness is not only taught by Paul in Romans and Galatians. It is taught throughout the Bible. It's the same as in Isaiah. Isaiah 61, where he proclaims the good news of God's salvation imputed to sinful man, given to sinful man. And it's the same concept that we see right here in Zechariah chapter 3. God is the subject, and we are the object. Right? God is the one doing the clothing. We only receive. Right? Joshua wasn't told, go change your clothes. God reaches down and clothed him. He removed the filth, and put pure garments on him. And this is all in the Old Testament. 
more dimly perhaps, but in the New Testament, with bright lights, the reality of God clothing and cleaning, acting upon sinners. God makes men in right standing before him. It is an act of God. Not merely that he provides for our righteousness and removes our sin, he does so, but he is the very one who had and earned that righteousness that took sin upon himself in that great exchange that we read we read about in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. That great exchange. In ourselves, you know, brothers and sisters, there's only futility, there's only despair, only dirtiness. All of us need to be cleaned and cleansed. A filthy person can't clean himself, he's filthy. This is only accomplished in Jesus Christ. And this is just what Jesus does for his people. You and I. And this is what these visions give us 500 years before Christ. And they're all point to and they are fulfilled in Christ, even as he worked upon us. Again, 2 Corinthians 5, that glorious, that most glorious exchange, verse 21. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Right? The glorious exchange of the gospel. And like Joshua, we too are unfit to appear before God. Our sin is like polluted garments. And we need clean garments if we are to stand before Him. We need to be cleaned. And in this vision, we see ourselves. For we are Joshua. On our own, we are sinners in the hands of a justly angry God. But as God's chosen in Christ... You are sinners in the pierced hands of Jesus Christ, the suffering servant, your Savior. That's who we are. Like Joshua, recipients of God's grace, His gift and grant to His children. We are clothed by God Himself in the robes of His righteousness. He removes our filthy robes, and He gives us pure, pure, spotless robes. So there's contamination of our own filthy garments. And then the glorious clothing, cleansing of God's pure garments. And now in verses 8 to 10, the coming of the branch. Right? We've seen the problem, right? the contamination of the clothes, the provision of God in clothing us, and then the prophecy of the coming of the branch in verses 8 to 10. Verse 8, in verse 8, the angel of the Lord tells Joshua that Joshua and the priests are a sign. They are a type and a symbol of something that is to come at that point in history. They are a type and symbol of the great high priest, the greater high priest that was still to come. Of course, we know this was Jesus Christ, the Lord. Verse 8, Hear now, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your friends who sit before us, before you, for they are men who are a sign. Behold, I will bring my servant, the branch. My servant, the branch. These are terms that are repeated in places like the book of Isaiah. It's covenantal language, speaking of the, the Messiah. That he would assume the role of servant of God, and that he would come to save his people as the Savior of God's people. And that's what happened. He became a servant for our sake. Right, the branch, again, this describes the coming of the Messiah from David's line, you recall. And from the tree chopped down, coming out of that stump, right? Isaiah 11 says this, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, 
and a branch from its roots shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. At the great tree of David to Solomon as chopped down, but the promise is what? That a branch will come out. Right? It is a restoration. Jeremiah 30, 23 says similarly, Behold, the days are coming when I will raise a branch from the stump of Jesse. These are prophecies about Christ. He is the branch. He is the servant. The Old Testament is telling us about Jesus. He is the one. Right? And we fast forward to Matthew chapter 1 and Luke chapter 1. Remember Gabriel's announcement to Mary. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there shall be no end. And then Matthew chapter 1, the book of the genealogy of Christ, the son of David. Zechariah's vision is about the Lord Jesus Christ. And as those who live on this side of the life, death, and resurrection of the Lord, we have much revelation that we've been given to us, that's been given to us, and we have every reason to trust in our great God and Savior and what He has given and what He's done. And when He says something, He's going to do it. In ourselves, it may be hard to believe. All that we're told, all the glorious promises, even that we'll be raised from the dead, and that he's conquered all of our enemies. If you're so slow to believe, and our faith is weak, it's sometimes hard to grasp and to have faith in those things. But it's going to happen. And he has promised that it will happen. And so we can live our lives with joy and serve with vigor. And God's word is trustworthy. And then verse 9 mentions a stone. A stone set before Joshua with seven eyes or facets. And this refers to the stone set in the turban of the high priest, which had an inscription that Zechariah refers to. Zechariah 3.9 For behold, on the, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. So Zechariah sees in vision Joshua receiving the stone from the Lord and being made acceptable with the inscription. Right Again, this is the inscription that was given to Aaron in Exodus 28 that we read that said, Holy to the Lord. Holy to the Lord. In those verses, verses 9 and 10 of Zechariah 3, go on to describe the consummation, the ultimate fulfillment, the wrapping up of all things. This is, a prophesy, this is prophesying about the Day of Atonement a great day of atonement, a day that would coincide with all of this prophecy, that neighbors, right? it says in verse 10, that neighbors, even the Gentiles, would be brought in and they would be invited to sit under the fig tree with Israel. Again, recall swelling, the border swelling, an immeasurable city. And that day came, of course, it came in the crucifixion of Christ. When that atonement was made. And it is there that we see the contrast of Joshua the high priest with Jesus, the greater high priest. Right? Joshua is pointing to Christ. But ultimately, Joshua, like you and I, 
He is a recipient of God's grace. Right? He receives God's grace. The day of atonement, that great day of atonement, shows the contrast between the two, Joshua and Jesus. Right? What did Joshua receive? He received a clean turban set upon his head. What did Jesus get on his head? Crown of thorns. Blood. Joshua was clothed with clean garments that were not his own. They were given to him. And Jesus, whose garments are always clean, he took upon himself filthy garments. Joshua was declared acceptable to God on the basis of God's provision of righteousness. Jesus was, of course, acceptable in his own right, by his own obedience. Yet he was forsaken by God on the cross because of the sin laid upon him for you and I. Joshua's sin was removed and atoned for. Jesus, who had no sin of his own, was made sin for our sake. That we might, what does it say, become the righteousness of God. And yet because of that Joshua, Jesus, because of that great high priest, the greater high priest, it is because of him that we can say that the accuser has nothing on us. He has nothing against us. There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Right? Romans 8 declares gloriously. Satan stands up to accuse, and he says, you're guilty. But Jesus says what? Satan has nothing on me. And you, being united to him by faith, he has nothing on you, brothers and sisters. Right? Remember John 14 in the upper room discourse, when, when, when uh, Jesus is ready to leave his disciples, and he says, the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me. Right, verse 30. He has no claim on me. He has nothing in me. He has nothing, no crime to accuse Jesus of. Satan could accuse any of us, of course. He could bring a huge case against any one of you. We are all guilty beyond our desire to admit in ways that we don't even consciously know of. Not so against Jesus. Not one thing. Not one thing. In fact, he is the only one that Satan can't rightfully accuse of anything. Jesus not only wiped clean your record because he bore all of your punishment, he did, but he also gave you his file. He gave you his record, imputed to you a transfer of files. And there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And our glorious hope and assurance is that the accuser will ultimately be destroyed. We put an end to. Go to Revelation chapter 12. I'm going to read from read verses uh, starting at verse 7, Revelation 12. And we see the, the, the glorious hope and assurance that this accuser's days are numbered. He will ultimately be destroyed. Revelation 12, starting at verse 7. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the world, the whole world, and he was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority 
of his Christ have come, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God, and they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony. Right? That describes, we fit in there, right? That describes you, dear Christian. Right? The accuser has been cast down. To quote the hymn again from last week, Lo, his doom is sure. His doom is sure, and the blood of the Lamb has conquered the accuser for you who belong to him. That Lamb, your high priest, God the Son has clothed you with his righteousness, the robes, the pure vestments of his righteousness, and there is now no condemnation for you. This is the good news, not only from the New Testament, from the Old Testament as well. All the way through, you know Joshua, like the rest of the people, were soiled and dirtied by, that, by the exile, by the Babylonian exile. And there was a serious problem. And these were serious questions as they come out and they try to make sense of it all. Was the exile too great for them to overcome? Could they and the high priest be made clean again and pure again? Was there any hope for them? And we, too, ask similar questions, do we not? We've all done shameful things. We all have things in our past, and even closer, even probably this morning, that haunt us with guilt that we cannot seem to get rid of. And maybe that deep sense of regret and shame and guilt leaves us feeling as though we are forever soiled by permanent marks of our own record. And like ink that stains our hands and you can't get it off, our consciences are blackened and dirtied. And in the quietness of our own minds and our own heart, maybe you ask questions as well. Is my past too corrupt to move on from, to move ahead? Can I really be clean again? Is there still hope for me? Praise God, brothers and sisters. There is hope and there is cleansing, yet for you and I. In Jesus Christ, there is sure hope, pure cleansing for you today and forever. As you repent and believe, know the peace that Christ offers to you, the peace that is extended to you, that is a sure reality, right? Peace of conscience is one of those benefits of salvation. One of those benefits that flow from our justification, our being right with God. Peace of conscience. Glory in your great Savior. Because He is a great Savior. The gospel is still and always good news, dear Christian. And it is news that does not change. May we rejoice because of this. You have a Savior that gave His life for you, that became sin for you. He clothes you with His perfection. He promises your victory in Him, even until the end. So remember this week and always, brothers and sisters, you have been made new. New creation. And though you were beyond hope and unable to cleanse yourself, your willing and able Savior has accomplished your salvation. And in doing so, He has freed you from those filthy garments. He has freed you from bondage of sin, from the guilt of that sin. He has freed you from the accusations of the enemy. 
whose doom is sure. He has freed you to live your life robed in His righteousness and to live for Him. Trust in the Gospel, dear Christian. Believe His promise to you and who you are in Christ. And trusting and believing, may we continually be challenged and assured and comforted and changed as we walk with this great God and Savior who never ever changes. Amen. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we delight to give you praise. Lord, we are awed by the promise of the gospel. Lord, we are so, so weak to believe. Lord, our doubting uh, hearts are overwhelmed by the magnitude of your love and forgiveness. But we pray, Father, that you would help us to believe who we are, who you say that we are, dead to sin and raised to walk in newness of life, united to Jesus, our Savior. Father, we pray that you would continue to be with us, continue to change us and grow us and shape us through the means of grace and through all that you do, the providential acts of our lives. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, thank you for tuning in this morning. Uh, if you'd like more information uh, about Providence, if you're in the greater Fort Wayne area and would like to visit us, please go to our website, providencefortwayne.org. If you'd like to give, if you were blessed by this message, if you'd like to have more information about the faith or about growing in your faith, uh, we'd love for you to get connected with us. Thank you.